to RUF. Uh, really good to have you all here again this week. <laughs> Especially after, uh, man, it's been so cold and rainy the last couple of days, it's killing me. Um, we played all fit Friday on Frisbee, it, on Frisbee on Friday. <laughs> And it was, inc- it was so hot to like running around on a frying pan, and now it's just the exact opposite. That's crazy. Um, anyway, if you're, uh, if you're new here at RUF, if you were kind of checking out other stuff at the beginning of the year, or you were uh, really getting really, really involved in school and kind of setting your schedule and your classes and things like that, which is fine. Um, but this is kind of your first few weeks, maybe your first week of checking us out and hanging out. Thank you for being here. Um, please see me or Megan or someone else, and if you want to get plugged in and get connected, please let us know. We would love to, to help you do that and help you to find community here. Um, I know that in the midst of 27,000 people, it can seem like it should be hard to be lonely here, but it can be. So we would love to help you fight some of that and be a part of this community. Um, so, you know, it can be really hard to imagine how somebody could be so gifted they could be a great writer of kind of children's literature and be incredibly insightful with the human heart. But yeah, that was certainly uh, C.S. Lewis, who, if you don't know him, was an Oxford professor back in the 50s and 60s. And if you're not careful, you can forget that while he was writing the Chronicles of Narnia and things like the Screwtape Letters, this guy actually had a day job. Uh, he was an Oxford Don, he was a professor of medieval and Renaissance literature. And he wasn't just any Oxford professor. Uh, as though that was not a significant achievement in itself. But he's often regarded as one of the most brilliant and insightful professors in regards to medieval and Renaissance uh, literature for like a hundred years before he's born and like up into the modern day. He's just this huge, like towering figure in that field. And Lewis loved the Middle Ages. I mean, loved them. Especially like knights and chivalry. Uh, which I think would be easy to get into if you're in the Middle Ages. But uh, what he really loved was kind of the rather unique worldview of a people whose ancestors had been like these com- cr- like crazy, fierce, utterly wild, pagan barbarians. And then all of a sudden, in a few hundred years, they're this society that's just steeped to the brim with like Christian thought and a Christian understanding of the world and Christian ideals, so that like you can live in the Middle Ages, and you might live your entire life and only see one book, and that was the Bible. Like, crazy, crazy stuff. And so, like, Lewis is fascinated by this because, on the one hand, there's like these barbarians, and on the other hand, there's this Christian thought, and both of these things exist side by side. And he said that nowhere do you see this like you see it in the person of the knight. And he said that the knight was a man of blood and iron, super, super familiar with, like, smashed faces and, like, lopping people's arms off and, like, crazy fierce, incredibly, incredibly fierce. And yet, at the same time, he has to be this demure, almost maiden-like, gentle, modest, unobtrusive man. And these things aren't a compromise, and there's not some sort of happy mean between this ferocity, and this meekness. But both of these things exist side by side at the same time. So one minute you're locking people's arms off, and the next minute you're this demure, maiden-like man. He's incredibly fierce, Lewis says, and he's incredibly meek. 
And if you hang out here around RUF long enough or you, you read some other things, you may have picked up the God that we worship is kind of a both and God. He's incredibly holy. He's incredibly loving. When it comes to his holiness, there are no compromises. He hates injustice. He hates deception. He hates sin. Yet he's also utterly merciful, like in a mind-blowing way. Like if you turn to him and you ask for mercy, you will always get it. If you look up steadfast love in the dictionary, he is there. And these characteristics aren't compromised or blended. Both his holiness and his love are true at the same time. And Jesus, because he's both fully God and fully man, perfectly exemplifies these characteristics. He will get in your face and he will say the hardest things to you that you could ever imagine. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. So he's speaking of hyperbole. That's a hard thing to hear. Where he sits in the temple courts all day and he kind of makes this whip of cords and he uses it to drive out money changers who are keeping people from worshiping God. Incredibly fierce, incredibly holy. And yet at the same time, he's the same guy that will sit and he will talk to outcasts and adulterers and tax collectors, so much so that the people in that society who are the rulers will mock him and will charge him with sin that is not his, when there is none. And he does not give a rip, because he is incredibly loving, he's incredibly holy. He's both of these things at the same time. And people know that you can't really make a guy like this up. That you always, when you, kind of, when you have kind of a man-made religion, there's an extreme of one or the other. Or there'll be some sort of wishy-washy kind of middle compromise. So that God is either like crazy vengeful and always looking down on your shoulder. And if you live the best life you could possibly live and work and work and work your entire life, maybe at the end of the day, he will tolerate you. But he will never like you. Or on the other hand, he doesn't give a rip about what you do or how you treat other people or how you treat yourself or the environment or the world around you. Because he's just so wishy-washy and loving. Those are the gods that people make up. The kind of God that is the true God, the kind of God that people don't make up, is one that is incredibly holy and incredibly loving and both of those things at the same time. That kind of God is foreign to us. He is the other. And in this passage we're about to read here, Mark makes no bones about that. That if you are a follower of Christ, or maybe you're just curious about Him, just kind of wound up here by accident tonight, then you will struggle to see who Christ really is. Believer, non-believer, being a Christian your entire life and a Christian for six months, it doesn't matter. You're going to struggle to see who He is and to follow Him. But if we are going to follow Him, then we have to let Him lead us in both His holiness and His love to understand who He is. We have to listen to His words, to watch His actions. We have to let these things lead us in knowing who God is. So tonight we're going to focus on two things. How do we tend to understand Christ? And how does Christ intend for us to understand Himself? How do we tend to understand Him? How does He intend for us to understand Himself? So let's read Mark 8 and see what He has to say. And Jesus went on with His disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way He asked His disciples, 
Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Another say Elijah. Another is one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them until no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let me pray for understanding for us tonight. Lord, um, would you be with us tonight as we try to wrestle with the things of God and with the things of who you are? And Lord, we have many concerns in our minds. We have midterms. We have relationships with people outside of these walls. Um, some of us come here very broken, very hurting. We're wondering where you are or where you could be. God, I pray that you would be with us. That you would show us what the things of God are. And who you are. What you want for our lives. God, apart from you, we can do nothing. But through you and through your Son, we can do all things. Most of all through that, we can know you and be known by you. And so Lord, I pray that you'd make yourself known tonight. And you'd awaken our hearts to your grace and your holiness and your truth. And your sister, I pray. Amen. So how do we tend to understand Christ? This passage opens up, and Jesus is taking his disciples away from the crowds, away from the miracles. If you've been with us at all this semester, you know that that's where they've tended to camp out, is around people. But things are a little bit different here. He's moved them away from all those folks. He wants to get away and talk about with them about what they've learned so far. And the thing that's most important to him here is, who do people say that I am? Not, many mir- not how many miracles have you worked. Not what do you think was my best sermon. Not even who should be my second in command. But who am I? What am I really like? What am I really about? Who do you think that you are following? And they answer him by saying that people think that he's John the Baptist, who's been killed at this point, but maybe he's come back from the dead. Or maybe he's Elijah, this kind of penultimate Old Testament prophet. Or maybe he's some other prophet. Regardless, he's not the portrait that your grandma has over her couch in her living room, where it's kind of this blue-eyed, like doe-eyed white guy with like a mullet. Like he's not that guy. People have recognized that nobody teaches like this man. Nobody says hard things to people in power and authority like this guy. Nobody communicates God's holiness like Jesus. He's obviously a great prophet. But he doesn't just stop there. He wants to know what the disciples think of him. And Peter's answer is that he's the Christ. And if you don't know, like Christ is not Jesus' last name. That's a, that's a title, like president, or king, or police chief. Basically what it is, is it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah. It means the anointed one. And basically if you were the Messiah, it means that God has placed on you the power to rule over his people, and to liberate them from their enemies. And it's clear that from the rest of this passage, that when Peter says that Jesus is the Christ, it doesn't mean that in the same way that Jesus does. Obviously there's some... There's a little bit of discrepancy here between what Peter wants and what Jesus wants. 
So when Peter says that he's the Christ, he's probably thinking that Jesus is the true king of Israel, and he is. Jesus doesn't disagree with Peter. The problem is that Peter's understanding of Christ is not the same as Jesus's. And oftentimes neither is ours. How so? How do we tend to understand Christ? I think we tend to want to think of him either as a good teacher or as the extension of some sort of like grandfatherly God in the sky. Or maybe just one of many ways to get to God. But the problem is that's not really how he presents himself. That's just how we would want him to be because that feels safer to us or like somebody that we can maybe more easily wrap our head around. However, if we really want to know who God is, then we have to take Jesus as he presents himself to us in the Bible. And if you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus isn't just a good teacher. He is the great teacher. He uses incredibly powerful stories for lost sheep, for lost coins, for lost sons, to show God's character. He says things that are easy to remember and which kind of get to the heart of the human condition. How to treat your neighbor or your wife or your money. But the thing is, his ethical teaching isn't new. In a lot of ways, it's kind of a rehashing of the ethics of the Old Testament. And in many ways, he's just re-articulating the golden rule. And that's something that exists in lots of cultures throughout time and history. So what's new for him is not the content of a lot of his teaching. What's new, though, is this question of who do you say that I am? That my teaching is not going to be what necessarily gets you in, but it's going to be me. Because we in our cultural moment like have this tendency to say that, well, he's a good teacher who may offer one of many ways to God. But that ignores his teaching about himself, doesn't it? That he's the way, the truth, the life. And that can rub us raw at times. I mean, really raw. But if you want to take Jesus seriously, and we do here, then it's clear that as he understands himself, he is the only way to know God, who is utterly holy, utterly loving. And people have wanted to look at world religion and say, well, really at the heart, they're all really getting us to the same place. Many roads, same destination. You go through Eastern religions. I can go and just kind of be a good person, whatever that means for me. I'll be the judge here. But presenting any of those religions as it kind of takes us all to the same point, really is it treat any of those religions on their own merits very fairly. It doesn't treat Jesus' words here very, very fairly either. It ignores the fact that all of those religions have very different views of God, very different views of who people are and what our destinies are. Different places, different roads. They're not all headed to the top of the same mountain. One might say that God is kind of this benevolent clockmaker in the sky or this sort of pure being from which the rest of the universe grows out, sort of like a tree from soil. But the thing is, that the God of the Bible, whom Jesus speaks and acts for, is not like this distant like God. But he's here with us, even though he's completely different. But he's not a part of the world. He stands above the world. And he has an intense care for it. He made the universe. He loves the work of his hands. He isn't about to abandon us to ecological catastrophe or just like spin off into oblivion. And he hasn't forgotten about you or your problems either. He's at work redeeming us in spite of depression, what Mary talked about tonight, or abuse, or that sense that we have to always be going and going and going and can never rest. However, you don't get to pick and choose what kind of Christ you follow. There's only one. There's not many roads to the Christ. There's only one road. And he wants us to ask ourselves, who do you think that I am? 
I don't know how well you know kind of guitar rock legends. Uh, when I was in high school, all I did was listen to like old school rock and roll, like 60s, 70s, Jimi Hendrix, uh, The Beatles, Led Zeppelin, all of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm preaching now, y'all. <laughs> but you know, out of the few of those people that are still alive, I think Eric Clapton has to like hands down be the greatest. Yeah, that's right. He's one of those people that's kind of seen and done it all. He's been a part of some of those influential bands the last 50 years, the Yardbirds, Cream. He's seen and been a part of the music business and like the best parts of it, the worst parts of it. He was buddy with Jimi Hendrix and George Harrison and like all these greats. When, when uh, Rolling Stone came out with a list of the 100 greatest musicians and guitarists of all times, he comes in second right after Hendrix. Like he is a big deal. He's known tons of personal success, tons of tragedy. And I heard this sort of apocryphal story about him a few years ago. It said that one time he was traveling, and he was going through an international airport, and he was checking baggage, and they made him fill out all these custom forms. And on the custom forms, they asked him not only, like, what are you carrying on, what are you, like, where are you going, what's your destination, but what is your profession? Like, Eric Clapton, what do you do? And, like, it's a guy who's been in the music business for 50 years, second greatest guitarist ever. Like, what does he write down there in that blank form? And he wrote, legend. (laughs) (laughs) And if you or I had written legend, they would have just written that thing up, but it's Eric Clapton, and they let him walk. (laughs) They're like, all right, you're you're Eric Clapton, you're a legend, agree. That's how you know you're a legend when airport security agrees with you. (laughs) But you, know, you can have all kinds of concepts of what a rock legend is, but until you meet one, until you hear his career, until you see what kind of person he is, you don't really know who he is. You don't really know what, what he's going to write in that form on that blank. And I would submit to you that in the same way, you can have all kinds of concepts of who Christ is, but until you take him on his own terms and hear his words and see his actions, you don't really know who he is. You don't really know him. Look at verses 30 and 31 here. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Why does he want the disciples to be quiet about him now? Like, if you think about it, he's been going throughout the entire country, preaching, teaching, gathering people to himself, and suddenly he looks at them and he goes, shh, don't say anything about me. Think about this. Why does he call himself the Son of Man here, not the Messiah? Messiah Christ, for Jesus, was a term that had all kinds of sort of political baggage with it. That people thought he was going to be this king who would kind of go out in the country and kind of take over. But Son of Man didn't. It was a relatively open term. And a lot of people said that he uses this term in reference to the Old Testament book of Daniel, where it describes this glorious, towering figure, one like a son of man, who comes before the throne of God and is given a kingdom that never passes away. That Jesus wants himself to be associated with that figure. Yet look at what Jesus does with this term. He says, yes, I'm this glorious figure, this son of man. And yet as he stands there, he also says... And I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be thrown out and cast out. And talking to Peter and the disciples here, he's not very glorious. He looks just like a peasant. 
He's probably dirty. He's been on the road for weeks. He's probably scraggly. There's nothing glorious or honorable about him. Nothing at all that you would desire him to be attracted to him. And yet he's saying that, you know, I'm this guy and I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die at the hands of the scribes and the chief priest. Like the guys who are copying the Bible and the guys who are tasked with putting the Bible into practice are going to kill the Son of Man, this glorious figure. What is Jesus doing here with Peter or with us? I think he's saying, okay, you want to call me Christ? That's right, because I am. But I'm not going to come to you on your terms. I'm going to come to you on my terms and my notions. And what Peter had expected was a sort of political figure who would rule by divine right. But what Jesus is telling him here is much bigger and deeper than those expectations. Can we just say this? Jesus is both the revealer of God's revelation and the revelation itself. He's the revealer and the revelation. What I mean by that? He doesn't just call us to be holy. He is holiness. He doesn't just call us to be loving. He is love. He doesn't just show us cosmic power, but He is that power. He is both the revealer of the revelation and the revelation itself. And God, when He comes to us, is not how we would expect Him to be, but He is who He is. Jesus upsets our expectations of what He wants. He's not this grandfatherly image who grants us every wish and just asks us to be nice and go to church on Sunday. For many Christians throughout history, and especially in places like Africa or the Middle East, to follow Christ means to suffer like He did. That God is never this grandfatherly figure, but He's this man that has loved them in the midst of suffering, and He has suffered as the Son of Man. Lots of people who follow Him have suffered. He's, quite actually, he's willing to quite actually put that grandfatherly image to death. He's also bigger than either our politics of the left or the right, right? Like, he's not just this king, but he's bigger than that king. And there are plenty of thing, things in the Bible that are super challenging to conservatives. Like, love poor people that have taken their money and taken their talents and squandered it and do whatever you can to serve those folks. Even if it means to take the shirt off your back and give it to that person. When they don't deserve it. Because that's what God has done for us. So challenging conservatives. But by the same token, there's plenty of things that are just as hard for the liberals to tolerate the Bible too, right? Restrictions on personal liberty. Things that say you can or can't do this. That's hard for them to read. And so here's the thing. If reading God's word and seeing God's character doesn't challenge you or push you or prod you to drop one thing and pick up another then you're probably not reading it very closely. You're probably not reading it to find out who God is. Because we don't get to pick and choose who God is. To know Him is to be unsettled by Him in a lot of ways. Look at verses 31 through 33. And He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And He said this plainly. There's no bones about this. He's talked in parables before. Now he's saying it straight up. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You can know when someone, what someone loves, but what makes that person mad. You know, if you love your standing community, then when someone attacks that standing, you'll get angry. 
If you love your money, then when that money disappears, you'll get furious. But on the other hand, would you ever stand between a mother and her child? Not unless you want to get your head bit off. <laughs> That's similar to what's happening here. You can just imagine the scene, right? Like Jesus tells them as they're walking to where they're going, like, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And then Peter grabs him and he pulls him aside and he says, no, you will not do this. You will not be a loser. You will not be on the wrong side of history here. And the rest of the disciples are kind of standing over there to the side and like pretending to check their watch or talk amongst themselves and like really just kind of watching this awkward conversation while Peter rebukes Jesus to his face. And Jesus turns and he sees those same disciples as they're checking their watch or they're pretending to watch a bird over here. <laughs> he turns and he sees those disciples and he gets boiling mad. Like, no one gets stronger language than this anywhere in the Gospels except Peter to Jesus right here. And he says, get behind me, Satan. So, so, so angry. What would send Jesus over the top like that? I think it's that when he looks at his disciples, he's looking at some of the dearest people in the world to him. These are guys that he has spent tons of time with. They've traveled on the road together. They've gone hungry together. They've been cold together. They've done incredible things together. These are the people that Jesus loves the most. Like when his family comes to him and says, hey, come here, do this. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, these are my mother and my brother and my sisters. These are my people. Yet these are also the men that Jesus knows are going to desert him, right? These are men like Thomas who are going to doubt after Jesus dies that he was raised from the dead. He's going to say, well, show me. No video, it didn't happen. Like, I need to see this thing. Or Peter, as Jesus yells at him, he knows that Peter's going to deny him to a slave girl. Like someone who has no physical power over him. And he is also at the bottom of the totem pole, like socially in this culture. That Peter is going to be an utter coward when it comes to Jesus. Or John, who's going to run away from Jesus and then come back later to take care of his mother as though she were his mother. These are the people that Jesus loves only as God could love them. Deeply, fiercely loves. And yet he also knows because he's God, he knows in every fiber of their being they are sinners. And so they deserve his wrath. And he feels both those things at the same time. And that's why he's going to the cross. That's why he's so resigned to go down this road that he would be the son of man who's rejected and cast out by the rulers and the authorities. Because he's holy, he knows that these people who he loves, their sin has to be punished. And these men, like all of us, are soaked in that sin. But because he's loving, he will bear their sin as well. Like he bears our sin. That he loves these men, but he also knows what these men will receive if they die in those sins. And when Peter steps in between him and the people he loves, it is on. That is not the God who is a product of Mark's imagination. As close as we can tell, by as many early accounts as we can take it, that this is Peter's account to Mark of what really happened. And so that means that at some point in his life, Peter is thinking back and talking to Mark, and he's remembering that point when he pulls Jesus aside and says, you are not going to do this. And Jesus, with fire in his eyes, says, get behind me, Satan. That is a powerful thing for him to remember. 
Because he will die for these men. And what Peter doesn't understand is that more than a political savior, he needs a savior that will make him clean. He needs a savior that will make him whole. He needs to understand that the good news of Jesus Christ is not just a proposition. It is news and so it is action. God dies for sinners. He dies for people who doubt him. He dies for people who run away from him when he needs them. This is a God who is uncomfortably, terrifyingly fierce when it comes to sin. And he is unbelievably heartbreakingly lovely and loving when it comes to sinners. It is only at the cross where these two things meet. Where Jesus is naked and he is bleeding and is there where God's holiness and his ferocity against sin and his love are reconciled. He is so holy that he dies to kill sin and he is so loving that he dies so that sinners would live. This is not the sort of God that people invent, y'all. This is the sort of God that shows up and wrecks people's inventions of who he is. That is the God that you tell your roommate about. That is the God that you tell your non-Christian family member about. That is the God that we read about in our community groups and our freshman groups. That is the God that we serve when we go to a soup kitchen together. That is not the God of our imagination. That is the God who is absolutely holy and absolutely loving. The gods that people invent are either crazy brutal and never happy with them or so soft that nothing they can do will ever be punished. There is no sin. And yet that does not do any justice to the people who are downtrodden in the world or to your own pains or to your own sorrows or the ways that people sin against you and you're sinned against. And until you see that God has not just died for sins, but he's died for your sins. He's not just died for other people and their problems. He's died for you and your problems. None of this will change you. God's holiness will not change you. God's love will not change you. Until you see that it was you that he died for on a cross to make right with God. And to make whole. And to bring close to him. That is the God we serve. That is God that we know through the Bible. I'll end with this. On the evening of October 12th, uh, 1931, so almost uh, like 75 years ago, there's a, a freshman at UT Austin named Charlie Black. And he went to go see a Louis Armstrong concert at the Driscoll Hotel in Austin, Texas. And he paid 75 cents to go see it. He goes there to meet girls, he hands him his three quarters, and he hears Louis Armstrong play. And it blew his mind. Later on in his life, he'd write this. He said, he, Louis played mostly with his eyes closed, letting flow from that inner space of music things that had never before existed. He was the first genius that I'd ever seen. And remember, this is 1931, Austin, Texas, the guy is 16, 17 years old. And he writes, It is impossible to overstate the significance of a 16, on a 16-year-old southern boy seeing genius for the first time in a black person. We had literally never seen a black man in anything but a servant's capacity. 
But Louis opened my eyes wide and put to me a choice. The blacks the same went were all right in their place, but what was the place of such a man as this? And the people from which he sprang. That night changed Charlie Black's life forever. He went on to become a distinguished teacher of constitutional law at Yale. And in 1954, he helped provide the answer to the question that Louis Armstrong posed to him of what is the place of such a man like this? And what is the place of the people from which he came? Because he volunteered for the legal team that fought to persuade the Supreme Court in the case of Brown versus the Board of Education that segregating school children on the basis of race and color was unconstitutional. That Charlie Black saw the genius of Louis Armstrong and the beauty of what he played, and it changed his life forever. And in changing his life, he changed a lot of other people's lives for the better too, didn't he? How will you respond to the genius of Christ? How will you respond to his holiness and his love? The fact that his mercy meets you at his cross. Will it change you? What will you do with that? Will you love people out of that? Will you find God's mercy out of that? Will it move you to love others? Will it move you to find his forgiveness? I hope so. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would move our hearts with your genius. I pray that you'd move our hearts with the love of your son Jesus, with his holiness. God, that he is utterly fierce and he puts his finger on our hearts and he shows us things that we do not want to see about ourselves. And that he has a love that will not let us go. And sometimes we are thankful for that and sometimes he would give anything to have that love let us go. And yet God, he does not because he pursues us because he is the hound of heaven who loves us. And God, he knows what's best for us. He moves in our hearts. And Lord, I pray that you move in our hearts as well tonight. To receive you, to go out with love, to be moved by your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Yeah, I'm going